0: How do you start five companies before you're 30? Welcome to Venture Voice. This is your host, Greg Gallant. And today, our guest is Frank Adante, currently the founder of the Rubicon Project, an ad startup. Previously, he started five companies. First one straight out of college. One was a Yahoo search engine competitor called Starting Point. After that, he started Reactions, which turned into L17, a double-click competitor that IPO'd and was subsequently acquired. He then tried to start a wireless company, but it didn't work out. He'll tell you about that experience, too. And after that, started StrongMail Systems, a very successful email company. He then left that and is now working on the Rubicon project. Here's his story. Frank, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. So, um, why don't you tell me about what drew you into starting a startup when you did Starting Point? I guess a uh, appropriate name for the first venture in your career back in uh, back in college.
1: Sure. Well, I was actually uh, looking to. I had to pay my way through college. I had to buy my own books and things like that, and was just uh, you know really looking for ways to make money aside from the sort of minimum wage jobs and things like that that uh, you typically get in college. Um, I had a job as a as a door guard. <laughs> actually, wasn't the most exciting, but there was actually a computer there, and just started you know, dabbling with the internet and uh, actually got involved with uh, just uh, doing some IT stuff like installing computers and upgrading software and. Uh, went to one company who asked me to install a T1 line. If you remember <laughs> early days of the internet, like that was like a big thing to get a T1 line. It was like yeah, fast sure. broadband access. And uh, you know, I asked them what they were looking to do with it, and they said they were putting up a website. And you know, dug a little further and actually realized that you know companies were actually putting up websites and stuff like that. And um, sort of realized that a lot of websites going up no way to find them so i came up with the idea of trying to build a card catalog for the internet and that's the uh, genesis of starting point.
0: cool so back then the, the way that you'd have to pitch a search site is to uh card catalog is the kind of connection yeah that you use. The, the
1: term search engine didn't exist
0: so, so tell me you know what what year were you how old were you and when you had this idea what was the first thing you did so I was uh, about 20 years old at
1: the time. Um, I think I had uh, I forget how many classes I had. I actually ended up dropping out of college with uh, four classes left. Um, <laughs> uh, as starting point, started to take off. Starting point ultimately became the seventh most pop- <coughs> Excuse me, the uh, seventh most popular site on the internet. Uh, and as things were growing, it's like this is fantastic. So I just sort of jumped mm-hmm. into that uh, that full time.
0: Wow, so did it take a lot of startup capital to get started?
1: Uh, no, you know, I didn't even know what capital <laughs> or venture capital or anything like that was. Uh, you know, I was just trying to, I was doing odd jobs and stuff, still installing t one lines and stuff like that to <laughs> uh, to pay the bills. Uh, we had uh, one computer, it served as uh, my personal desktop computer. It was my email server, uh, my web server, <laughs> <laughs> uh, plugged into an ISDN line <laughs> at the wow. time. Uh, so, yeah, no no, no capital. Um, grew the traffic uh, and ended up um, you know, one day saying, you know, I need to make money off the site. And that's where I turned to advertising. Picked up the phone, called a few advertisers and said, hey, you know, I have this site. It has a bunch of traffic. Uh, would you like to advertise on it? And these advertisers were like, yeah, not quite sure what that means. How much does it cost? <laughs> and I'd say, I don't know, $1,000. <laughs> and they'd say, hey, that sounds great, <laughs> right? Next time I'd pick up the phone, uh, I'd call someone else, uh, you know, like Microsoft or ATT, try to get them to advertise their products, and they'd say, How much does it cost? And this time I'd say it was $3,000. So that ended up uh, leading into the genesis of uh, my next few companies, which were in the advertising space.
0: Okay, great. So, so what happened to Starting Point? You were selling ads, you became the seventh most popular site. What did you do with it? So we, uh, we ultimately ended up selling it to CMGI,
1: and it uh, became part of the, the CMGI family.
0: Great. And how much did you sell it for?
1: I was actually part of a uh, transaction combined with uh, Yesmail.com, and uh, the whole transaction was a four hundred and fifty million dollar transaction.
0: Ah, wow, so that must have really set you off nicely early in the career. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, it was
1: a great learning experience. Um, CMGI stock uh, didn't do too well. Uh, clearly, <laughs> the company is not around, um, but it was uh, it was a great experience to you know build and grow a company, especially at a at a young age. And I think that served as a platform for me to kind of. Buy- do my next four or five companies
0: yeah sure so so once you sold that company you must have had kind of a number of options on your plate you know uh between just enjoying the money you had for a while or going to you know be an executive somewhere you know where the genesis for the next idea come from and you know how do you uh and you still had that hunger in you
1: well you know at that point uh, dropping on a college i figured i didn't have much to put on my <laughs> resume so i couldn't go off and uh, get a job somewhere <laughs> <laughs> so I like building stuff. Uh, that's really what gets me excited. Uh, so I looked at a number of things. I um, actually started a uh, technology development company out in Chicago. And you know, we were building websites, building advertising technology, uh, and, and a bunch of things like that. And I just really wanted to work with good people and build stuff. Um, so you know, that's what I turned to. And one of the ideas that we were uh, incubating there um, grew some legs, and that became my next company, which was in the, in the online advertising
0: space. Okay, cool. So before I get into that, you know, I think uh, geography is kind of an interesting part of your story as a tech entrepreneur. What was it like being in Chicago? You know, why did you stay in Chicago? Was it harder, easier to get started up there?
1: Well, you know, I, I grew up there. I uh, ended up going to college there. I went to Illinois Institute Institute of Technology, and you know, the whole technology stream was already there, and I had access to a lot of. You friends of mine who understood how to write code and I was just sort of engulfed in the whole technology space. So that made things a, a lot easier to kind of grow and scale teams around technology. Compared to, say, Silicon Valley, uh, yeah, there's a lot less competition for those engineers, so hmm. a lot fewer things around them to, to tempt them. So that part was certainly easier. Uh, I wasn't surrounded by the ecosystem of venture capital, and the resources around kind of growing and scaling a business, so that was a, a part of my life that was that was lacking. I had to figure out all this stuff on my own. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know investors. I didn't know VCs. You know, I didn't know some of those sort of fundamental things that companies use to go and grow grow and scale uh, grow and scale their business. So that was probably the biggest challenge.
0: Hmm. So when you came up with this next idea, I guess reaction, which then turned into L ninety you know, where'd the idea come from? And again, you know, wh- what do you do this time around to get started with it? Sure. Well, back at starting point,
1: as I said, the way we made money was through advertising. And after every call that I made where I kept upping the price, you know, it'd be $5,000 and then $7,000. And then, you know, I got to a certain price where the advertisers were like, you know, how do I actually know that you have this traffic? How do I know that my advertisements are actually performing? Uh, and how do I know that they're actually reaching the right audience? So I developed uh, Ad Monitor, uh, which was one of the first ad servers on the internet, to solve that problem. You know, so I can provide reporting, targeting, tracking capabilities for the advertisements. So I could give them sort of an ROI analysis to say, look, you know, here's what your ten thousand dollars got you. Mm. And then as I was doing things at Reactions, where we were building websites, uh, what we're finding was that everyone who's building a website was looking to market that website to get users to their site. And once they got them onto the site, the way that they were looking to make money was through advertising. So I was like, you know, I'm going to stop building websites for people and actually just focus on this advertising technology uh, to help people monetize their sites. And that's, that's where that, uh, that grew.
0: Cool. So uh, how did you put that company together? Was, uh, were you the CEO? What, what kind of role did you take in it? And you know, how did the team come together?
1: Yeah, so I was I was the CEO without the CEO title. I'm not a big fan or believer in titles. I think they're things that you know, go on people's resumes and you know, externally are important. So uh, I forget what my title was, but I led led the company. Uh, we had a group of folks that you know, I'd worked with before. Um, we didn't have any you know big fantasy of going and building a giant company. But what ended up happening was uh, we were doing a bunch of uh, technology business. Uh, ended up. Partnering with a company in Los Angeles, uh, also a very small company that was brokering advertising, buying and selling advertising between advertisers and websites, and we ended up doing so much business together. We were supplying the technology; they were supplying the the ad sales. Uh, that we ended up putting those two companies together under under one roof, and that's what became L ninety.
0: Cool, and uh, you know it's an interesting story. One of our past guests is uh, Kevin Ryan from DoubleClick, which is uh, obviously the competitor there, and I sure. know that. They were doing the same and they had a lot of tension in that model where you're, you're selling the ads and you're doing the technology where each could be independent or not. You know, It changes depending on how the market matured. How did that affect your business? Was there a lot of tension in having both of those in the same company or did it help you? You know, the beginning
1: was almost a requirement and that's why we ended up pulling these two companies together because just having the technology what we were finding was people didn't know exactly how to use it. Right? They didn't know what advertisers were looking for. Uh, they didn't know how to sell their own ad space. And it made sense for us to provide the technology and the salespeople to actually leverage it, ultimately providing the websites with, with more money. Um, I wouldn't say that there was tension in the beginning. Uh, DoubleClick, I think, being the 800-pound gorilla in this space, uh, certainly commanded a lot of attention. I think people were very concerned about the control that they had, very similar to how people perceive Google. Today, so I think they were probably a little bit more under the microscope than, than other companies.
0: And what was the culture like when you have a company? I mean, you know, typically you think of people from Chicago as having a very different mindset and culture than people from LA. How'd that affect your company having those two, uh, you know, these two heads to it?
1: Yeah, there's there's actually a lot of truth to that. Especially growing up in Chicago, when I told people that I was moving to LA, uh, their first response was, "Oh, you'll be back," you know, they <laughs> talk about the. The, the mudslides and the earthquakes and all those kinds of things. And of course, you know, every geography has its, has its own issues. Chicago being, you know, it's freezing cold and super hot uh, in the summers. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a problem at all. Uh, we, we had an office in Chicago that was, was our technology office. Uh, it's where a lot of, a lot of our engineers were. Uh, our headquarters was in LA. Uh, we had a lot of the ad sales folks there and we, we sort of grew the company where the, the cultures were somewhat separate but combined. I think we all shared a, a similar set of, of values and beliefs in the company, and everyone worked so well together. Uh, you know, very few egos. It was an incredibly flat organization. I mean, just melding technology people with salespeople normally would be mm-hmm. a challenge, let alone the two geographies. But you know, it worked out quite well, and it was actually one of the strongest cultures of, of any of my companies.
0: Cool. So, Tommy, that was a really crazy time in the Internet, you know how how kind of the macro environment affect your company? What, what was kind of the the feeling inside there?
1: Yeah, one of the things that was a sort of double edged sword for us. You know, I was young. I'd come from Chicago. I talked a bit about how I didn't have exposure to the whole venture capital world in LA back at that time, seven years ago. Uh, that that exposure wasn't there either. People didn't go build businesses for venture capitalists and think about things like. You know, valuation from venture capitalists and percentage equity ownership and things like that we were just focused on building a great business. That was our sole objective. It wasn't thinking about building up value and paper money and things like that. from one side if we if we had that kind of experience, we probably could have grown the company a lot faster instead of being number two to double click. We could have potentially been number one or, or greater but uh, the flip side to that is as the market downturn Occurred, uh, we weren't as affected because we were really focused on building a, a profitable business. I mean, we were dealing with uh, non dot com companies, we were dealing with uh, you know, Fortune 1000 type companies and trying to get them to spend their money online. It was just, a, I guess, a different mentality of, of building a business than maybe a lot of the other companies in the, in the tech sector. Yes,
0: yeah, so I guess on one hand, you, you couldn't grow as fast without the capital, but on the other hand, it kind of forced you to look at fundamentals. So how did it play out you know, during the downturn? Uh, what, what changes did you have to make in the business? And you know, what would the prospects look like for growth at that point?
1: Well, actually, I moved on uh, to my next company after, uh, right before, actually, the, the downturn. Uh, but like all companies, the company uh, had some issues uh, because of the, the market economics. Uh, a lot of the VC money, money dried up, uh, which was a lot of what was fueling the dot-com advertising sector at the time. L90, I think, did a lot better than most because it was focused on sort of those brick-and-mortar companies. It was, it was harder to get their money, but once we got their money, uh, we were able to keep it because you know they weren't going out of business and losing their funding and things like that. Uh, but what ended up happening was you know being a public company, uh, we ended up taking that company public. Uh, we re- reached a market cap of about a half a billion dollars. Uh, and as the market downturn occurred, you know, the valuation went lower and lower. And uh, any company needs to look at maximizing shareholder value. And you know, one of the advantages that DoubleClick had was that they had a lot more money, and uh, because of that, they had a stronger position in the market, and they were able to go and acquire the ad monitor technology from from L ninety.
0: So, what's it like to watch your paper yeah. worth, you know, fluctuate so much, and in the period of you know less than five years, go from being you know a college kid with night jobs to being worth you know i don't know how much you were worth on paper but you know tens of millions hundreds of millions and <laughs> then watching uh, some of that depreciate again yeah don't remind me
1: um you know th- the interesting thing is that i didn't i wasn't looking at that i don't know if it was because i was young i don't know if it was uh because it was all sort of fantasy land to me at the time you know i was really enjoying what i was doing i was really just Focused on building a great business, I didn't calculate how much my shares were worth on a day by day basis, so it it had very little effect on me. I saw potential, you know. Once you see something like that and being able to create value and be able to do so in a in a you know fair and honest and and fundamental way, I don't feel like we created a business that was was driven up by a bunch of hype around private investors and things like that. I felt like we built a great business. So I wasn't really, I guess, you know, affected by the, the, the fluctuations. Um, would I have liked to see the, the stock price continue to go up and uh, see, you know, that company as the, the market leader today? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I think it's you certainly learn a lesson about uh, getting in at the right time and also knowing when to get out at the right time.
0: So tell me about your story there. So you decided to leave. You know, what was your thought behind that? And uh, how that decision come about? So as we're going through the IPO
1: process, it's, it's a very long, arduous process. You've got bankers and lawyers and analysts and everyone sort of coming in and picking apart, apart your business. And one of the things that they kept coming up with was, what if Frank gets hit by a bus? Like, what happens to the company? And while at first that might seem flattering, yeah, you know, it's like, oh wow, like they think I'm important. Uh, I looked at that actually as a personal failure on our, my part because I think any business that has long-term sustainability cannot revolve around one person, right? It can't be that dependent on that one person. So, you know, I looked at that and said, "Wow, I've got to change this, right? We cannot have this perception." So, what I really tried to do is uh, disseminate a lot of the information that I had in my head to to my team. Um, really build up the the reinforcements. Um, so we, you know, in the event that you know, Frank did get hit by a bus, uh, everyone felt like everything would be just fine. And I did that. And I spent so hard, uh, so much time, and, and worked so hard to to do that. That one day I was like, wow, I sort of worked my way out of a job. <laughs> It was sort of a bittersweet day because I was like, wow, you know, I accomplished my goal. Um, everything is really self-sustaining. Uh, this perception no longer exists. But then I was like, w- what What do I do next? And, you know, at the time I was like, you know, L90 is in a great place. Uh, the technology platform is is scaling, is doing well. I mean, we're ser- serving 8 billion ads, reaching 65% of the Internet. And everything from that point forward would have had to have been iterative, not revolutionary, uh, at least for the next one to two years, and started looking at the wireless space and saw that there was a complementary opportunity actually for uh, me to go build a business in the wireless space and, uh, and, and do a partnership actually with L90 to expand the offering. And so I ended up leaving to start that next company. L90 did invest in it, along with some of the other investors from L90 and some outsiders. So there was somewhat of a connection. So I didn't feel like I was I was leaving per se, but I felt like I was kind of going out and pioneering like, the next thing for the industry, of which L90 would also partake in some of those benefits.
0: Great. So can you just tell me, uh, you know, what was L90's fate? How did, uh, how did things go after you left with the people you'd installed? Well, it was, it was a tough thing to do
1: because I didn't want to give my team the perception that I was moving on because L90 didn't have a future. That wasn't the case at all uh and i had complete faith and confidence that they'd be able to to carry it on um, but it was tough because you know a lot of people looked at that and said you know hey is frank abandoning us um uh you know they were questioning perhaps uh, some of the reasons that i was doing that you know maybe they were looking at new ideas and things like that so you know, i really tried to to keep the team motivated and keep that connection to to the company um but what ended up happening to, uh, to L90 is that uh, DoubleClick acquired the ad monitor technology. Uh, DoubleClick being in, the, in New York, L90 being in, in L.A., a lot of the uh, folks from L90 um, didn't go along uh, with the acquisition and uh, ended up pulling them into some of my, uh, my next companies.
0: Cool. So it's always next company. <laughs>
1: So the next company was a wireless company. It was called Zondigo. It was in 2001. The absolute worst time to be starting a company, particularly a wireless company. It was a it was a fun time. Um, we we did fairly well given the the market conditions. Uh, but the problem that we had is that we had one customer and one partner. <laughs> Happened to be Intel. But a business can't survive on one customer and one partner.
0: So what was preventing you from getting more customers and more partners?
1: You know, everyone was running for cover. Uh, people weren't investing in new technologies, meaning companies weren't investing in in new technologies. Uh, and wireless was the last thing on their minds. And that was, you know, quite frankly, uh, what ended up happening. We ended up raising some money. As a matter of fact, I spent six months just raising money, doing nothing else. You know, from morning to night, just working with investors, trying to you know, figure out what what I can do and change the business plan to actually get their money. Then I finally actually raised another round of funding. Three days later, woke up and I sort of looked at the business as I was able to get back in the office and drill into what's happening in the market and realized that there was actually no business. There was no market. And I ended up giving the money back to, uh, to the new investors.
0: Wow. So, so tell me about that. Cause you know, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, there's like this really tough situation you can get in where on one hand, you know, it's to some degree about belief and a certain amount of just faith in your abilities and the knowledge that you can make it work, even given all these, you know, obstacles and reasons people have been telling you that it can't work. But here you were actually able to realize like, Oh wait, you know, the reasons that it can't work are actually valid, and I, I'm going to listen to the to the negatives and and not do it. How how do you uh, how do you know when to stop?
1: You know, I think it's just the way that I'm wired. You know, my wife actually asks me all the time. She's like, "How is it that you don't get hung up in all the emotion and you know, drink the Kool Aid and and things like that?" and yeah, I don't know that I can point to like one specific reason as to why. Uh, you know, One thing that I do look at as an entrepreneur is that the, the biggest asset that I have is my time. Right? And I've got to think about how to best invest my time. Right? Capital and money, venture capitalists, they can always get more money. Right? And you can always get more money. You can always hire more people. You can always build more technology. You can always create new marketing messages. But you can never get your time back. So I look at that and I truly look at it sort of as as an investor of of having a finite asset that's non-renewable that I've got to figure out what to to do at that time, right um, And you know, I looked at that and and as a CEO, I've got an obligation to all shareholders, investors, uh, employees, um, you know advisors, board members, all the above, and you know I just looked at that and said, you know I'm not going to take this investor's money and waste it." Um, I'm not going to take my time and waste it. I'm not going to uh, take all these employees and run them through a process of building a business that I don't mm. think is is sustainable in this market.
0: Was it an easy decision?
1: No, not at all. <laughs> it was a very tough decision. Hardest thing I've ever had to do is give money back to an investor. Uh, and you know, the, the team was a, was a team that I had a really great relationship with. Uh, in fact, my sister-in-law uh, was one of the folks that I had co-founded the company with. So it was it was tough. It was really tough to do that because they all did believe, right? And and I didn't want them to to feel like I was misleading them because of the you know, my job also is to be sort of the chief promoter of the company and that's exactly what I did. And I didn't want anyone to believe that I was I was lying to them or trying to sell them a bag of goods. I think you know I just had to be real careful with saying, look, this is truly what I believed, but in looking at the market, talking to customers, seeing what's actually going on. I just don't believe that this is the right time for this, for this business.
0: So you do the very, very of giving money back voluntarily. What do you do after that? So after that, I was going to kind of take a little bit of a break,
1: uh, ended up getting married (laughs) and I started a, uh, a little incubator. So there's a lot of folks, this is also around the same time that, uh, double click acquired ad monitor so there were, there were all these folks from l90 uh, that were looking for for the next opportunity or, or their next job and you know by that time I developed a great network of investors and uh, and, and resources and people who you know, were passionate about building businesses and people who could actually do the work so I uh, ended up doing a little incubator um, didn't have a super fancy name I just called it Adante associates um, I didn't even really call it an incubator that we had a number of ideas going. We actually ended up buying starting point Point (laughs) back, which was, which was fun and interesting. Uh, we were working on a photo sharing site. Um, that one was a little too early. I think if, especially if you look at the, the exits over the past few years on photo sharing sites, uh, and we had a bunch of, you know, ideas that we were kind of tossing around. And one of those ideas was, uh, an advertising platform. Another idea was an email platform. And, uh, was sort of incubating that and then ended up, um, finding that the email platform really grew some legs. And then I realized I'm not really good at the whole incubator thing because once that thing started growing legs, I poured all of my thoughts, resources, and energy into building that. And that's what became StrongMail.
0: Uh, so now you have uh, several companies under your belt, you know, so you're, you're going about this one with many more connections, resources, and the market's looking good. Tell me about how you put that company together.
1: Yeah, so 2002, uh, when the market still wasn't all that hot, uh, enterprise software was dead, is what people were saying, and I started an enterprise software company in email, when people were also saying that email's going to go away, it's going to be replaced with instant messenger, uh, it's going to be replaced with RSS, uh, and and, things like that, text messaging on phones, and. Uh, I, st- I decided to start an email company. And you know, I didn't look at what what the magazines were saying or the press or the news or anything like that. I just looked at real customers who had a real problem. I saw that the economy was shifting from uh, paper communication to paperless communication. Everything was going electronic. Uh, saw that 65% of all Internet traffic is email. And then saw that the architecture and the infrastructure that email is being delivered over today was developed and architected 25 years ago. Systems like SendMail that were actually built for you know, universities and things like that. Certainly not built for big enterprise accounts like Ticketmaster or Fox, who are sending sports scores and e-statements and tickets over, over email. So jumped into that and uh, you know, fought every market trend around enterprise software and, and people saying the email was going to uh, to die uh, we built a great business grew it to cash flow positive uh, ended up raising a bunch of money from Sequoia capital uh, about 30 million dollars total ended up moving that company to Silicon Valley and uh, the company's still around today doing incredibly well and uh, and grown
0: fast that's great so tell me about why uh, you know you, you talk about LA and it's um you know, starting to build its entrepreneurial chops. Why'd you move to Silicon Valley? (laughs) Well, again, 2002,
1: uh, there's a few reasons that I ended up moving the company to to Silicon Valley. Uh, One is after raising some money, uh, the biggest challenge I had was hiring people. And the enterprise software business is way different than the advertising business or building a website. It's just a different talent set. The way you sell things are different. The way you uh, build software is different. So I was like, you know, um, I could either spend my time recruiting people or I can go move the company to where the people are. So I assumed that was Silicon Valley. Um, also with the Sequoia connection, I figured that Sequoia Capital was really well connected and had deep roots in Silicon Valley and they can help us grow and scale the business and partner with companies, which was the third reason, which is let's go to where all the companies are that we're gonna partner with, like Oracle and uh, uh, BEA and, and companies like that.
0: Did you find that you had to change your mindset going from like the back in the days with L ninety, where you're kinda of the underdog, you're you're undercapitalized, you're you're fighting, you know, for survival and customers are all that matter and revenue This all all that matters. Now all of a sudden, you know, you've got Sequoia backing you. You've got millions and millions in the bank. You cannot do anything, and you'll still be operating in another month, in two months, in a year. Did that affect the mindset at all, or was it just better having the money?
1: Well, I did. I self-funded the company. We bootstrapped it. Um, I put a little money in. Uh, we just you know, built technology, sold it. Like I said, it was it was a cash flow positive business before we took the money. So I think that really set a a common set of of fundamentals in the mindset of the team and the way that I was looking at building the business. And when we raised the money, it was really expansion capital. We really just wanted to take the product to the market faster. So from that standpoint, it did not change the mindset. Um, From the standpoint that it was Sequoia, uh, that certainly did have an impact on me. I was 26 at the time, so still young. Uh, while we would taken L ninety public, it's not like we had uh, you know, the aura of Sequoia around us. You know, I think the 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 mindset of of investing in Silicon Valley was very different than how we looked at things in L A. So I felt like when I took the Sequoia money, that I needed to become a a Sequoia entrepreneur, right? That I had to do things differently, and that I had to do things all sort of you know proper and by the book, and and yeah, you know, I felt like I wasn't able to make mistakes because I felt like I had this expectation or reputation now that I needed to to live up to and that was probably the the hardest thing uh, mindset wise
0: so you felt, you felt like that held you back or pushed you forward
1: you know at first it pushed me forward uh, then it held me back you know I found myself making decisions based on how I thought you know the book would say that you make decisions right like some kind of business school book or something so when I hired people, you know, I looked at resumes. I was also, you know, slightly insecure about being in the enterprise software business because it wasn't a space that I was familiar with. Uh, being in Silicon Valley was a geography that I wasn't familiar with. Uh, you know, the people are different, the way people think are different, uh, the way uh, they look at the world is different. So. Yeah, you know, I found myself making decisions. Yeah, on on, on data and information and uh, advice. You know, I was taking advice from all sorts of people and trying to you know listen to that advice and kind of do what everyone thought was was best because I I feel I felt like the the people with all the experience had all the right answers and I wasn't trusting my gut as much. And it was probably the the worst time for any of my businesses because I found that uh, the company wasn't doing as well as it could be. Uh, I wasn't feeling as good about it. It was very frustrating because I was making decisions that I didn't necessarily believe in, but I thought were the right decisions. So, yeah, it was uh, that was tough. And one day, you know, just, I woke up and I was like, look, if this company is going to be wildly successful, then I've got to be able to believe in those decisions. And I'm going to make mistakes, right? But I've got to be able to look myself... In the mirror, and and say that you know I believed in that decision, and, and mistakes are okay, and once I make those mistakes, I can adapt and change, uh, but I can't be afraid to to take risk and to uh, do things that are sort of against the grain, because I think that's the difference between you know, an average company and a company that's wildly successful. So I allowed myself to do that, and, and the company just literally like changed almost every night, uh, 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 overnight. <laughs>
0: So, so tell me and about probably every night, for that matter. <laughs> so, so tell me about that because uh, you know entrepreneurs get a lot of advice. Or everyone wants to advise them, and you even mentioned in your bio that you advise startups. And so, you know, here you are getting advice from people with more experience. You know, supposedly uh, you know smarter and wiser than you. What do you do with that advice? Do you ignore it? Do you follow it? Do you have, you know what's kind of your guidepost now? And you get advice from people you respect and. You know, kind of meshing that with your gut. I
1: think first is you ask for advice only when you really want to hear it. Uh, But you know, you're going to get you're going to get advice that you don't believe in. Uh, You're going to get advice that you hadn't thought of. Um, You're going to get advice uh, for things that maybe don't necessarily make sense to do right now. So I look at all that stuff as just suggestions. I try to soak up as much information as possible uh, from everyone in the company, from outside people, from people that just aren't in the space at all, um, whether that be marketing messages or uh, which products to build or what's going on in the market or uh, you know, things like that. But you know, I take it as just that, advice. I don't look at them as, as orders. Um, it's hard sometimes when you don't take someone's advice. Um, but you know, I think if you're if you're upfront with people um, and you say, "Look, you know, I'm just I'm really just trying to learn," um, I find that people are very quick and and willing to to give that advice. And I sort of have this little uh, this little trick with advice that maybe doesn't make sense right now. I, I have what's called a not not right now list. <laughs> so, as people come with up with ideas, and everyone's got ideas that don't maybe make sense. For now, but are still good ideas. I say, hey, that's you know fantastic. We'll put it on the not right now list.
0: That <laughs> sounds like good measures. So, tell me, this business went well. What'd you sell it for? Who'd you sell it
1: to? Uh, is still around. I'm still on the board. Still a very active uh, board member, and um, it's it's growing. Uh, it's 150 employees now, thousands of customers.
0: Oh, great. So, you just decided again to uh, to delegate, get yourself out of it, and let it go on.
1: Well, this business in particular. Uh, As I said before, I didn't know a whole lot about the enterprise software business. Um, And realizing that, when I moved the company up to Silicon Valley, I knew I wanted to get back down to L.A. So my goal there was to spend two years there, uh, hiring a management team, uh, hiring a CEO, uh, people who really understood the enterprise software business, uh, still remain as a very active board member, and then move back down to L.A. And that's exactly what I did.
0: Great. So you get back to L.A. Mm -hmm. When did the idea for the Rubicon project come up? Well,
1: I was actually uh, running running on the beach, something I love to do every day, uh, which is...
0: Not well, something you can do in Chicago no. or uh, Silicon Valley so easily.
1: No, no, not, not at all. Uh, that's That uh, one hour on the beach is, is my time. I don't need anything else for the entire day. It's just that one hour of time to, uh, to soak in the world and kind of think about things as, as I'm running. Um, but uh, what ended up happening was um, a couple of things. I uh, ended up getting back together with the team from L90 who built AdMonitor for me. Uh, we looked at the online advertising space. I wasn't looking to start a company, uh, but we looked at the space and realized that while the market has grown...
0: Well, you say you weren't looking <clears throat> to start a company. Is that true? It sounds like you were... Uh, no, it's true, were- actually. I was.
1: What I was focused on doing was... Uh, I wanted to take pretty much the year off and uh, spend time doing a bunch of charity work. You know, I felt like I'd been very fortunate at a young age to uh, have worked with some great people and accomplished some some great things, and I wanted to share that uh, in the form of helping some charities grow. Uh, And I was also uh, trying to pay it forward in terms of uh, working with uh, young entrepreneurs and stuff. So I I started a blog. I was advising a number of companies uh, and things like that. So that's what I was focused on doing and. Yeah, the people from my team over at L90 were people that I was always very fond of. And, you know, I just wanted to know what they were up to, uh, what they were doing. And, you know, naturally when you kind of reconnect with those people, you kind of think about all the the good times and the, you know, what if or what could have been type of thing, Uh, especially after DoubleClick had sold to Google for $3 billion. (laughs) Uh, We looked at that and said, oh, well, that was interesting Um, after DoubleClick acquired our technology. Uh, but yeah, you know, we we looked at the space and, and realized that over the past seven years, while the advertising market has grown quite rapidly and quite significantly, not a whole lot's really changed. Uh, particularly when it comes to innovation or technology innovation for websites who are trying to monetize their ad space. So you know, we looked at that and said, well, maybe someone needs to come in uh, and create some technology that was was built this century is how I like to call it because. Everything else was developed or architected 10 years ago in the early days. So that was uh, one factor. The second factor was uh, as I was jogging and running down the street uh, to the beach, I literally ran into uh, an investor that I had known for years, and turns out that he lived or lives two blocks away from me. And he's like, Hey, what's going on? I'm like, Oh, nothing. You know, just chilling out, <laughs> hanging out on the beach. Uh, and he's like, You know, you should really think about getting into in the online advertising space and you know, maybe you should start a company and you know, if you did, we'd like to fund it and you know, next thing you know it's a combination of great people uh, funding and market that brought the whole thing together
0: So in the valley you go to Sand Hill Road but in LA you just find investors on sand <laughs> Yeah, exactly <laughs> So you have this idea so you know, in a nutshell what, what was the idea to what this company would be?
1: Well we looked at we first looked at the problem, right? And the problem was that even though twenty seven billion dollars is spent advertising online, eighty percent of all the ad space on the internet goes unsold by websites directly. That's eighty percent, right? So we're like wow, that's a massive amount of inventory. And that unsold ad space goes to ad networks. So everything from Google to Yahoo to, to coda to Blue Lithium to ad networks that you or I have never heard of. There's actually about 300 ad networks that exist today. If you look at this, seven years ago, when we were in this business, um, there were 15 ad networks. Two years ago, there were a little over 100. Today, there's 300, and we think that number is only gonna continue to grow as we see more international ad networks developing. Uh, locally focused networks Uh, there's price based networks CPM, CPC, CPA now there's CPE cost per engagement networks Uh, there's vertical networks Uh, there's the sports ad network today the travel ad network Uh, there's the gay ad network all things that didn't exist years ago uh, big media companies like Fox are launching ad networks. You know, publishers are becoming ad networks. Ad networks are becoming publishers. And we looked at this and said, wow, like, that's a lot of chaos. right?" And while it's fantastic for advertisers because now they have choice and they can diversify uh, their spending amongst m- multiple ad networks, for websites who are trying to monetize that 80% of their ad space that goes unsold – we're like this like, this is a nightmare because the money is being spread around to so many different places. How do they actually connect to all these ad networks and actually send their ad space to the right ad networks that make sense? Very similar to the real estate market. As the real estate market grew, everyone ran out and uh, got a broker's license to go and buy and sell houses. Same thing's happening in online advertising. And someone has to sit in the middle of this to, to bring order to this chaos. And that's, that's what we're out to do.
0: That sounds very audacious. <laughs>
1: We've got uh, big visions and, and big plans and a, and a great team I think that's connected to this to those plans
0: and so now with this one you uh, you're still in L.A. How do you uh, you know with this experience, how do you go about deciding exactly how to put together the team? Uh, I guess it kind of has to structure it and maybe bring in some new people and then raise the financing
1: well. The one thing that I have learned is, and I know this sounds very cliche, is that team is everything. I think it makes the difference between a good company and a great company. So when I got together with uh, my three co-founders, the first thing I said to them was, look, we have to make team development and culture a priority. Happy people are going to make happy customers. Simple simple premise. Um, So we did that. And the first thing, we didn't talk about product roadmaps. We didn't talk about the design of the software. We didn't talk about marketing presentations. We talked about the kind of team that we wanted to develop, uh, the, the values that we wanted that team to have, and, and that's where we started. Uh, we actually pulled together a lot of the team that we'd worked with before, which certainly made things a lot a lot easier. Um, we already had the money. We started this company with money, which is something that I've never done before, but I wanted to apply the same fundamentals as though we didn't have, money. So we wanted to build a business that we knew could be profitable. Uh, we wanted to build a business that we knew could scale. And uh, we just sort of divided and conquered. And uh, yeah, I think the benefit of having people that you've worked with before is that you trust them a lot. And we're okay with making mistakes. And we went into this eyes wide open saying, look, like, let's just move fast. I have this this saying that I, I believe in, which is uh, go fast, but don't hurry. So we make speed our mindset. Uh, we've pulled together a you know, fantastic team. Um, they all work incredibly well together. Uh, we're always thinking about how we can iterate faster. Um, we, we're looking out for the mistakes that we're making and adjusting quickly. And uh, you know, I think having the money has helped us really to to feel comfortable with actually making those mistakes without worrying about you know the company going out of business. So it just really gives us some flexibility to to feel good about making those making those mistakes to learn from.
0: And how uh, how's your roadmap been so far? Is it kind of like, you know, the, the idea on the beach and this original idea that you had for the business, has it really been playing out that way so far, or have there any been any big shifts in strategy yet?
1: <laughs> you know, funny enough, there hasn't been, and... It's, it's the first time that this has actually occurred because we, we expected that we launched the product uh, and we'd find out that it was the wrong product and we we'd have to redevelop it. We built that into our plan, actually. We, we anticipated that that was going to happen. Uh, we expected that uh, once we launched the product and actually got the second or third revision of it right, that we'd have trouble scaling. We knew that we had to deal with billions and billions of ad transactions and we'd process you know, millions of dollars' worth of payments. And that's very complex. And hard to scale. So we figured, okay, the thing's got to scale, and we we you know we expected the thing to break. Uh, we expected servers to be crashing, software to be serving the wrong ads in the wrong places. Uh, and then the third thing that we expected was that it was going to be hard to acquire customers because there's so much noise in the online advertising space that everything sounds the same. And to our surprise, um, we we built the right products, uh, version one. Um, we took it out to, uh, to market, um, more than 500 sites signed up to use our service in the very first day. Uh, so far over 4,000 sites have signed up to use it in the past five months since launching it, uh, which was just absolutely overwhelming. Uh, we've served, uh, almost 10 billion ads now. <laughs> so we've gone from zero to 10 billion ads. Uh, and the thing has scaled and, um, you know, I, I attribute all that to, to the team. I think they, they knew the challenges. Uh, they'd been in this space before. Uh, they'd worked together uh, before, and I think all those things um, really contribute to, to why we've been able to sort of hit the, hit the targets right from the, the, from the very beginning.
0: It certainly enough. makes my job very easy. <laughs> and how do you make money with it?
1: So we, uh, we take a percentage of the revenue that flows through our system. Um, again, we're processing billions of ads. Uh, this is a low margin high volume game 80 percent of all the ads on the internet go and sold and that's what goes to ad networks uh in trafficking that our customers have seen anywhere from a 30 percent to a 300 percent lift in their revenue so we're taking a, a small percentage of that uh of that revenue sort of how like uh, like visa or like nasdaq take mm-hmm. a, a cut just for processing the the transactions
0: was it hard to get the ad networks on board? I could easily see you know, a large ad network like Advertising.com saying, well, we already have all these customers. We don't want to be disconnected from the publishers that we're running on.
1: Yeah, so that was one of the things that we looked at early on. Um, and I think having experience in this space really helps there. Uh, I've got a lot of good relationships with the folks that run the ad networks. Uh, but people in general don't like change. They don't know what change means for their business, but we felt pretty strongly that change needed to occur, and the change would actually be beneficial to everyone. Uh, we looked at this space and realized that it's it's very manually manual. Um, there's a big problem um, because 33% of consumer time is spent online, yet only 7% of of advertising budgets. And we sort of dissected why and realized that it's it really comes down to two factors. Uh, one is advertiser confidence. And two, is that it's still too damn hard to advertise on the internet. So when addressing the ad networks, we said, look, the fundamentals here are that we're just trying to automate this. We're really just trying to bring a new level of innovation and technology to this. And if we do that, then everyone benefits. Websites aren't loyal to ad networks because there's so many of them, right? And they've, they've sort of become commoditized. And... and Ad networks have a huge problem with churn as a result. So it makes them hard. It, makes it hard for them to actually predict the inventory that they're selling. So we came in and said, look, we are not trying to get in the way of you guys doing business. Uh, we're not going to sell direct to advertisers. So we're not going to get ourselves into channel conflict with you. Our job is to help you guys do a better job and to harmonize the relationship between website publishers and ad networks. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to make the inventory more predictable. Uh, we're going to do a lot of the work for you. So we're going to certify the... The ad space on these sites we're going to make sure that the your tags end up in the right ad space and um, you're going to uh, you do a better job sort of managing the matching between ad space and ad networks so you guys can in turn make more money by selling stuff for higher higher value stuff to the advertisers and that's actually exactly what's happening and today we have 60 of the top ad networks that work directly with us
0: uh, so 60 ad networks 500 publishers I think you've raised uh, 21 million.
1: So it's 60 of the top ad networks. Um, f- over 4,000 publishers have signed up.
0: 4,000. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I'm sorry, what was the last oh, question? Oh, and
0: 21, uh, I think I read 21 million in money raised.
1: We did raise, yeah, $21 million in capital.
0: And how many uh, employees do you have now? 40. 40. So uh, it seems like it's just starting to really scale up here. What's your, you know, on the record now, what's your prediction for where you guys will be in a year? What, what your biggest challenge is going to be? You know, I think I've learned to, to stop
1: predicting uh, where we're going to be because if you ask me to predict that we'd be where we are today, there's no way. I mean, we've been, we've been at this for 10 months now, and, uh, and the company operates like it's a business that's been around for two or three years. Um, so while that part's been fantastic, it does make it hard to sort of plan what's next. Um, you know, we looked at our original plan, and, and I realized a couple of weeks ago that we ran out of plan, so we need to create a new one. Um, but in terms of uh, where this can go, um, the market potential is huge. Right? Online advertising is expected to double over the next four years. Uh, we're seeing a ton of international expansion. Anywhere from 30 to 50% of U.S. sites, their traffic is coming from international sources. International is a huge area of, of focus for us. So, and, and we think that the trend of, um, of, of ad networks is going to, to continue to grow and a lot of business is going to be transacted. Uh, via ad networks and we're sitting at the center of this and really trying to create this automation platform for, for everyone so we think there's a big opportunity there and I think we're in a good position to actually solve this problem
0: so what's your advice there are entrepreneurs listening out there I mean I'm sure that they're hearing about how the internet ad market's growing things are still growing and uh, lots of great ways on and off the web what's your advice to people just thinking about starting a business today
1: uh, just in general or in the in the advertising space uh, in general uh, well, in general, I think advertising is a good way to support the growth of sites. I mean, you've got bloggers now that are leaving their jobs uh, because of, of ad supported models. Um, yeah, I'd say more, more high level, I think anyone starting a business, you really got to trust your gut. And I think you got to be willing to make mistakes and realize that making mistakes are okay. I think mistakes are uh, what, in the learning from mistakes, are, are what are the, the, the genesis of, of real innovation. Um, but, you know, I'd say uh, f- focus on building a business that can make money. Uh, try not to be a feature, <laughs> but try to be like a real business. Uh, and uh, build a great team, um, figure out your business model early, and, uh, and just, just go for it.
0: Hey, well, Frank, thanks a lot for coming on the show.
1: Sure, absolutely. Thanks, thanks for having me. This, is, uh, this has been fun.
0: That's all for this podcast. Thanks for listening to Venture Voice. To continue the conversation, make sure you go to VentureVoice.com. You can leave comments. We'll be sure to read them and respond. You can also email us through that site privately and find links to everything mentioned in this podcast, including to Frank's blog and to the Rubicon Project. You can even set up your own blog and see if the Rubicon Project can make money for you. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, this is your host, Gregory Gallant with Venture Voice entertaining entrepreneurship.